Today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. Good morning, everyone. As Brent mentioned, my name is Dave, and I'm from Greensboro. I think the person who I've known the longest in this room is Josh McCall. We met in fifth grade. Uh, having lived outside of Greensboro and the United States for the last 20 or so years, it's, um, it's really a precious gift. As I look around the room, I'm seeing more people that I've known and been a part of the body of Christ with over the years, and it just brings a lot of joy. It's a real gift um, today to be with you. And usually when, when I get a chance to preach back in the States, it has something to do with the Great Commission. And... I'm trying to not be a, a broken record, so I'm asking the Lord, what do, you, what do you want me to share today? And I think circumstance really brought that together because tomorrow is a new year, right? I got my days right. Is that correct? Today's New Year's Eve. And with New Year's Eve comes something that some people like and some people don't like, New Year's resolutions, Right? Forbes magazine says that about 60% of people, so maybe about 60% of us, feel pressured to create New Year's resolutions. And the top two, it's probably not a surprise. One, getting in shape. Two, and getting mentally healthy. So, we're not unaccustomed to New Year's resolutions. Um, or what happens in, along in February that we don't really keep them so good, right? So this morning, we're actually, we're going to talk about that. And in particular, trying to unpack why, what are the drivers behind things like New Year's resolutions or those things that keep us from being able to fulfill them? I'd like us to extend this idea a bit more broadly, even to the Great Commission. And to what extent are we as believers proclaiming the gospel that's increasingly in the Western world seen as closed-minded or hostile to inclusivity, and to other parts of the world that see it as an affront to their culture, to their families, and their own religious convictions? So if we are proclaiming the gospel, what's driving us to do that? And if we're not, what's holding us back? So first, let me just zoom out a little bit and give us a big picture of what the Lord is up to in the world. It may surprise you, this stat. Missiologists say that about 60% of the world's people groups have been reached with the gospel, which means about 40% of the world, in terms of every tribe, tongue, and nation, still doesn't have a viable church or believers among them. 
that's really kind of a hard thing to measure, but this is from an informed missiologist, and that more or less gives us an idea that we're a little over halfway there. So when we think about when the Lord wants to return, probably uh, it might be a little while, and we know that he's not going to come back until there's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping him, because that's the vision that we have in Revelation 7. So just one example of this is where we live in Spain. It's about 1% Spanish evangelical. We often think of Europe as being Christian, but really it's post-Christian. And Spain is increasingly not even just post-Christian, it's post-Catholic. Also today, we're seeing sending countries changing. So we think of traditionally Western countries sending missionaries to the rest of the world, from the West to the rest. Uh, That's not really the case as much anymore. The United States is still the number one country that sends missionaries, but after that, it's South Korea. And after that, it's Nigeria. And after that, it's Brazil. So now instead of the West to the rest, it's the whole church to the whole world. So that's a quick bird's eye view of the Great Commission. Maybe this information is motivating to you to be even more intentional in being part of God's kingdom um, among the unreached. But I'm pretty sure for most of us, that's probably not enough. And just like a news resolution, um, that's not going to be enough to make massive changes in your life, is it? It wouldn't be for me either. It's one thing to know what we should do, and it's another thing to actually do that, isn't it? And part of the reason we don't like making resolutions, maybe, is because we don't or we can't keep them. And when we don't keep them, we feel guilty. And let's be real, there's not, um, guilt is not a great driver. We don't have famous Christian books coming off the shelves called Freedom Through Guilt or Guilt-Powered Change in Christ or Leveraging Guilt for the Kingdom, right? And I think that's because there are things that are holding us back that keep us stuck that we don't even realize. And so we look for false joy that leads to more physical and mental and spiritual poor health. Otherwise, we just do it, right? What if you think you're doing a pretty good job at keeping your resolutions? What if you think you're spiritually pretty healthy? Sure, you could reflect on how you prioritize prayer, steward your time and finances. How, um, but what about your heart's motivations? Are there inner drivers that make you look good on the outside to other people, but perhaps on the inside it's not so pretty? The passage that we just heard read um, is a good starting point for us. If you've ever read Tim Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, then this passage would be really familiar to you. I'll just read it one more time. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his, commission, his commendation from God. This is such an interesting passage, Paul, Paul writing this here. Of all people, you'd think that Paul would be able to justify himself. He, of all people, is the missionary of missionaries. He's taken the gospel to the Gentiles. He's gotten beaten up 
all kinds of different ways for the glory of God. He of all people should be able to rest in his spiritual accomplishments. And yet he says otherwise. On the one hand, he doesn't think he's got anything unhealthy going on in his life. And on the other hand, he knows he shouldn't trust himself, his own perspective, because it may or may not line up with God's. And in the end, he says everything is going to come to light. Part of our problem as human beings is we trust ourselves too much. Have you ever been so convinced of something and then you find out later you're dead wrong? That's what I mean. We may even feel good about the choices that we make in life, the ministries we're involved in, but how can we be so sure that they're from holy motivations? Is ministry success a good marker for that? Well, let's think about the life of Jonah. We don't often think about him in in terms of ministry success, but he, he rolls up into Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which is Israel's mortal enemy. They have political and military authority over Israel. And he reluctantly, reluctantly tells them to repent. And they do. Isn't that remarkable? In terms of ministry success, there's no one quite like Jonah, honestly. But that's probably not the same thing as uh, long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson says in his book. He, he quotes uh, Friedrich Nietzsche um, talking about this intimate walk with the Lord in a sustained way. Little did I know that when I left for the mission field some 20 years ago or so, that the Lord was going to reveal down the road that some of my own motives weren't all pure. You see, I confused the holy calling with holiness. And those aren't the same thing, are they? And this confusion got fed when I would come back on home assignment. And we would sometimes get comments from people that would say things like, oh, you guys are so amazing. I can never do something like that. And next thing you know, I thought, oh, yeah, I guess I am pretty amazing. And what I then became to discover was that, um, no, I'm actually no different from anyone else. And a comment like that would both feed my ego and help that person get off the hook from what they were afraid God might ask them to do. As it turns out, I need Jesus just like that person does and have same, the same sorts of struggles just like, like they do. I think that the point that Paul is making in, in 1 Corinthians 4 is not that our true motivations can't ever be discerned, but what he's pointing us to is not found in ourselves. He wants us to increasingly live in the light, in the presence of God, being with him, listening to him, talking to him. What Paul is really exhorting the Corinthian church and us is to not look within for truth, but to look to the Lord for identity. So let's unpack that a little bit. There's this nice little book, concise book, by this uh, chap named David Benner called The Gift of Being Yourself. And in it he says that there cannot be deep knowledge of God without deep knowledge of self. Say that one more time. There cannot be deep knowledge of God without deep knowledge of self. At first, that might sound a little off 
like he's encouraging us to navel gaze or it's a little narcissistic. But let me just have us recall one of the most powerful metaphors on earth as an example to reinforce this truth. It's marriage. So knowing and being known is what marriage is all about, isn't it? A cornerstone of a healthy marriage is continually learning about your significant other, listening to their stories, understanding their feelings, joys, and struggles. And the flip side is being known, isn't it? Physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. There's no way to have deep relationship if it's one-sided. If one person shares from the heart and the other person is superficial. There needs to be sharing and listening and vulnerability both ways. It's what draws a couple together and creates intimacy and unity. And here's the thing. Marriage between a man and a woman has a shelf life. It won't be around forever. It's weird, but Jesus says that after we die, our redeemed bodies don't have gender. And that marriages on earth won't be eternal. Why is that? I think at least in part, it's because being male and female now and marriage now is primarily a metaphor for something even greater. When the bridegroom called Jesus marries his bride called the church, or in Revelation 21, the wife of the lamb, and they become one. And knowing God and being known gets even more complex because this bride of Christ is us. In the same letter, Paul writes in chapter 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So knowing and being known by consequence means that happens with both the head, God, and the body, us. And so whether we wish it were the case some days or not, God has inextricably joined us together. So the logic of Scripture dictates that we should be moving toward the light. And the light is God himself. Jesus is the light of life. And we encounter him through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, through his word, and through other Christians. That sounds all great, and it is great, except for one thing, and that's sin, right? It kind of throws a wrench in the gears. We acknowledge that we're sinners because that's what the Bible tells us, and it's true. And we also know that we are. But also, we kind of have cultural things that keep this Christian unity from happening. If we did stuff that was pretty messed up before we believed in Jesus, well, then we've got a story about God's grace in our lives. It's called a testimony. But if we do that messed up stuff after we've believed in Jesus, well, it gets a little more complicated, doesn't it? We don't tend to talk about that as much. And it doesn't often make it into our own testimonies. So this is what happens. We keep it hidden, and we stuff what often has roots that go way back into our lives. Things we feel we should be free from, we're just not. We live a life where people see just a bit of who we are, and we don't even see or understand much of who we are or what motivates us. And so we get stuck. 
And when also on top of that, we have some negative experiences in the body of Christ from fellow Christians where trust was broken, when we felt really misunderstood, and that her relationship has never been the same. When we think about um, the incidents that precipitated uh, where that relationship got, we may feel anger, hopelessness, confusion, and wonder where God was in all of it. There's some really deep things in our lives that keep us from growing since it has to happen in the context of the community of the body of, of Christ. There's a book by this guy, Peter Scazzaro, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. On the cover of this book is an iceberg. You may be familiar with this psychology metaphor. On the top of an iceberg, things you can see about a person pretty easily. Um, eye color, where they're from, or if they're angry. Below the waterline in an iceberg, it's much bigger, isn't it? It goes way deep. And the things that we see on the top are just a little bit. And so, for example, when someone is angry, we can see that on the top, but the roots of that and the emotions behind that go much, much deeper. So that's the analogy. And he says that Christians live in such a way that they don't look deeper to the root causes of dysfunction in their lives. And it's for this reason the tagline of the book is, it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. That's a bold statement. Let me just read that one more time. It's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Okay, I want to read just a couple quotes out of this book. Our fear of bringing secrets and sin into the light, however, drives many people to prefer the illusion that if they don't think about it, it somehow goes away. It doesn't. Unhealed wounds open us up to habitual sin against God and others. There's no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. In fact, the true spiritual life is not an escape from reality, but an absolute commitment to it. So, of course, what that looks like in each and one of our lives is different. Some co common qualities when we aren't at our best, or psychologist Jim Wilder says when we're not being our true selves, can be the following. Narcissism, codependency, paranoia, uh, passive aggressiveness, compulsiveness. And as I mentioned in my own story, full-time no uh, full Christian workers are no different. When we as humans get stressed, at a certain point, if we're not maturing emotionally, ugly comes out. And if you dare to dive under the water to explore your own iceberg, you're pretty much sure to encounter hurt. Being confronted with our own shortcomings and sin once they get specific names, is really ugly. And it hurts a lot, especially when we understand how it has affected people that we love the most. And that's part of the reason why we don't, isn't it? We've already been hurt, so why go back there? And the other part is that we don't even realize those immature aspects of who we are and how we've sinned against others. We call those blind spots. But if you have been confronted with your own sin and you have looked at it head on and if you have gotten freedom from it, then you know it's worth it. It's the darkness of our lives, pre-conversion and post-conversion, where the Lord loves to shine and in his loving light to heal us. 
It's when we understand and face our sin that the Lord loves to take it away and replace it with his amazing grace and love and all that good fruit of the Holy Spirit. Having come out on the other end of this a few years ago myself, I can say it's been one of the most significant things in my life, and I'll tell you, it's so worth it. I don't want to go back to living the way that I did before. If you don't know where to start, you could start with uh, emotional, emotionally healthy spirituality. Um, there's good resources out there. It's just one. And remember that the Lord has designed us to grow in the context of community, especially emotionally health. We just can't do it on our own. So reading the book, if you read this book, it'd be helpful to a degree. But to really grow and get freedom, it's going to happen in the context of the body of Christ. Okay, so now I'm going to bring this back to the Great Commission. I know that sounds probably a little disjointed, but let's see where, how this goes. Just like New Year's resolutions, if we don't understand what's driving those, then we're bound to fail, either failing to meet them or unrightly feeling good about ourselves when we do. We need increasing freedom in Christ while we are maturing emotionally, relationally, and spiritually in order for the motives behind those decisions to become congruent and pleasing to the Lord and not just to ourselves and others. The Great Commission will not be fulfilled unless people continue to be sent into the harvest fields where there are no known Christians. 40% of the world's people groups are still waiting and living in darkness. They've yet to see the great light of Emmanuel. Christmas just came and went for us. It also just came and went for them, but another year with not knowing, them not knowing that Emmanuel is actually Jesus. This commission won't be fulfilled without people giving their lives, finances, time, and prayer. That's just how the Lord wants it done. And this is what he says about it in Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? And all those rhetorical questions have an answer. They won't unless someone is sent, unless someone does preach the good news. Now, taken out of relational context, the Great Commission can kind of feel like a New Year's resolution. We feel like maybe we should be doing more. I'm not really sure why. But when it is put in context, that relational context with the Lord and with others, it starts with the heart. As we move towards the light in those needed growth areas, our hearts begin to align with what the Lord loves. And the Great Commission becomes less of an obligation and a command and more a greater pursuit of joy. So whether we're sharing the gospel with a Catholic person in Spain or a Muslim in Africa or a post-Christian here in Greensboro, we quickly find that we've got a problem. A lot of people don't like the message that we have. When we're emotionally immature, we can take one of two tracks. Either digging in and telling them how wrong they are and cutting off the relationship, or stop talking about sin, that there's only a salvation in Jesus, and prioritize the relationship at the expense of eternal truth. 
and their well-being. But as we grow in emotional and relational and spiritual maturity, though, we learn to walk down a third path. We learn to love the Lord with all our hearts and embrace and share his truth and strive to maintain that relationship in love and truth as far as it depends on us. When we're rejected for the Lord's sake, we rejoice. And when we find someone willing to listen as we have listened to them, we rejoice that gospel seeds have been planted. And as the Mandalorian says, this is the way. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the way. Let's walk together in vulnerability and weakness so that we can continue to remove our shame and free us to love one another more fully, finding identity in him and then enter into Christless lives and communities to bring light into darkness. Can I pray for us? Lord, we thank you so much for light. We all know what it's like to live in darkness, and it stinks. Lord, we thank you so much for showing us the light that you call us to yourself first and foremost. Will you do that, Lord? There's so many things in our lives, so much brokenness that have happened to us and we've done ourselves that keep us from it. But Lord, you say that you want to give us life and life to the fullest. You've come to set captives free. And Lord, my prayer is that you would increasingly do that for Hope Chapel. Will you continue to knit them together in the body of Christ, continue to grow, growing them emotionally and relationally and spiritually. Bless them, Lord, in 2024, that they may be a blessing to others as well.